Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and its various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark graves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. George Barrage is our guest today. George began academic life as a journalist, but like Hank Williams, saw the light and also began digging deeply into American literature. He's now the American Literature Editor of the Times Literary Supplement in London. He lives and works in London, and his review of The Passenger and Stella Morris was published in October last year. I read this review and thought it was maybe the best one I read of the several million that were published. I can't say I've read all several million. And George and I started a little bit of long-distance correspondence, and I thought this would be a great way to get him onto the show. And so, George, thank you for coming on board. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. George, why don't you, this is how I start every podcast with a new guest and tell us how you discovered Cormac McCarthy. Well, I came to McCarthy through my father, from whom I swiped my very first copy of All the Pretty Horses uh, just before I left for university. And I never returned that version. It's now <laughs> dog-eared and pencil-marked, which one day he might forgive me. Um, it's become something of a thorn in my side, though, just on an aesthetic level, um, since it's the first UK paperback edition and all my other McCarthy books followed the design which Picador, who published McCarthy in the UK, stuck to when they republished McCarthy's novels after The Road. Um, Those so are beautiful editions, by the way. That's right. Yeah, yeah, they, they do a nice job over here. Um, but the sad point is that the spine of all the pretty horses now sticks out like a sore thumb. <laughs> but I remember, to come to the grid of it, I remember very, very clearly starting the book one morning, at pretty soon after I'd started university and ended up bunking up bunking off kind of whatever unimportant things, <laughs> lectures or essays that I had to do that day and sitting for most of the day in this just terrifically uncomfy chair in the uh, in the kind of shared communal area, sort of semi-agog. And I think it was maybe the last, and I'd sat there and I read it all day. And I think it was probably the, like kind of the last vestiges of the previous night's hangover were just about wearing off huh. when I found myself almost inconsolable at the final sections where um john grady cole sees uh the funeral pr- procession for his abuela and stands there weeping with his hat in his hands and i was i was hooked after that and i had read almost everything i think save for perhaps the the play script for the stonemason before the end of that year and ended up badgering my local bookshop to track down a copy of um john sepich's invaluable notes on blood meridian oh excellent which is the start of my kind of uh foraying more deeply into study of mccarthy between when you and i are recording this and when i finish editing it and releasing it there'll be a second all the pretty horses episode coming out from the podcast and with the guests will be stacy peebles and steve fry on that one just calls this the the, the great books i'm trying to give the multiple you know episodes too and Something that everyone's agreed on, this is the book that primarily pulls people in and gets them hooked first. Usually when people are saying what's the most significant or greatest, they will always focus on Blood Meridian, sometimes The Road, sometimes Sutri. But inevitably, the one that gets most people on board seems to be All the Pretty Horses. And that's the one I always recommend to new readers who are interested in him and want to see what's going on. Yeah, I think so. And I think certainly that if I was to recommend... McCarthy to anyone I think all the pretty horses would be my entry point I think it's a little bit it gives somebody a little 
sense of false start or false promise, I think, if you get them in on the right. road. Because a lot of people, I think, came to McCarthy, and I, I speak about this briefly in my the review. I think a lot of people in the UK came to McCarthy after the film adaptation of No Country and after the release of The Road. And I think that suddenly it gives you a sense of him, of his kind of late style. Exactly. But I think that it's perhaps a little bit jarring if you if you want to be the sort of reader who goes and then reads all of him. Pretty jarring to start at the road and then and work backwards to the Orchard Keeper. By which point, you know, things are becoming more and more difficult to grasp. And right. People's, I think, people's energy would start to wane. I think if that's the way you approach it. Yeah, a lot of people want to recommend No Country for Old Men as a starting place because it's it's still very tricky philosophically and thematically, but yeah. it's very straightforward in terms of the prose compared to his other works. I never do because just for the reason you're saying, it gives a false impression of what his his work is like. The road might be a little more back toward his normal style, but I certainly think All the Pretty Horses is the one that's kind of halfway in between. It picks up on, you know, for lack of a better term, some of the Hemingway-esque aspects of that's the right. late work while incorporating his his expansive poetic prose of the of the earlier works as well. Well, I think that's completely right, but I think it's it's an interesting question, particularly when it comes to us versus uk reception of the book it somewhat hampers and hamstrings mccarthy's reception over here i think because there is such a if you give someone all the pretty horses people might know it sort of by reputation as oh that's the that's the book about cowboys and you know just manly men being cowboys right i think that there is a kind of nebulous floating conception of mccarthy as the cowboy writer and i think that 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 sticks in people's heads a little bit and i think you have to work a little bit over here to tell people no, no there's 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 more going on here so would you say that his reputation as i say without any shame or hesitation at all in the opening i read for every episode that he is one of our greatest american writers and as, as of right now I, I i would say in my own opinion of given uh you know the writers we've lost the last several years there's no doubt to me that he is currently our greatest living writer in the united states would you say that there that's not really the feeling for him in the UK? Or you were telling me before we started recording that that first review of All the Pretty Horses was not particularly flattering over there. Over here, it was overwhelmingly positive, but not so much in the UK then. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I went through our archives today and I dug out John Sutherland's original review of All the Pretty Horses. And he he thinks the book falls almost entirely flat. He finds McCarthy to be... Uh, to Hemingway-esque, and he thinks that it's a kind of sub-parody attempt of various different kinds of spaghetti westerns, which I think is a it's a pretty thin reading. And I, I think John Sutherland is, in many respects, an interesting and engaging critic, but I think that he stumbles here, and I found it was pretty interesting the letters which the TLS received in the wake of this review. Two came in, one from the, uh, one from the United States and one from a reader based in Canada, and the, uh, the reader from Canada said, uh, I'll quote this to you because I think it's worth reading out in full. I'm a Canadian, by the way, not the American chauvinist you might suspect, nor do I particularly like horses, but it would take a tin ear not to recognize the beauty and mystery in Cormac McCarthy's prose, which I think is a pretty good way to sum up a letter. And later on, we have a, a Mr. Daniel Conaway from New York who takes some exception to the fact that Sutherland cites the fact that some words can't be found in the OED, <laughs> to which he he says, oh, one wonders if Sutherland was similarly offended when his visits to the OED came up blank during his first reading of Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange, uh, given the national bloodlines, it's doubtful. 
So it was a pretty hostile reception. And I think that the way that McCarthy's first broke onto the scene in the in the UK, I think a lot of it ended up becoming a kind of character of criticism in some respects, huh. that it came down straight away to, well, he's he's just like Hemingway and this is kind of subpar in many, many respects. I was very interested to note actually when I was reading John Sutherland, and I hope I won't get him in too much trouble here, because both the, the London Review of Books and the London Review of Books first review of it, it is not wholly positive, but a little bit more positive right. than John Sutherland's review. But both of them, I noticed, basically call him a trumped-up imitator of Zane Grey, which uh, I think is... Oh, which, that's, that's kind yes, of unforgivable. <laughs> that's right. Um, but I noticed only today, just that I was reading through both of them, that Sutherland, in his 1997 review of several of Grey's books, self-plagiarizes his own review from the TLS a few years ago, writing that the Western, quote, still awaits its Dashiell Hammett. So I think that's kind of, that to me strikes me as kind of interesting. That being said, it's worth noting that in that same year, the year that All the Pretty Horses came out over here, he did get some good early attention from a few notable critics over here. Uh, The late Al Alvarez, who we of course lost in 2019, called All the Pretty Horses a cowboy novel transformed into high art, which I think is, to me, strikes me as being a little bit closer. Right. But perhaps you could take just a minute to for the reader, for the listeners on this side of the pond who don't necessarily know exactly what the Times Literary Supplement is. I think you and I are both approaching it with an idea that among literate people who read deeply in literature, they know, you know, we have certain things we just know about. And that may not always be the case. So could you just uh, give us for a second the background and maybe circulation, including digital circulation, if you know it, of the Times literary supplement and just kind of what its status is. Sure, of course. The TLS, uh, again, I'll, I'll do this as a kind of layman's guide. I think that's probably the easiest way of introducing right. The TLS was first published in the Times as a kind of, as a supplement of the Times of London, the main newspaper in January 1902, I think was the first week it came out. And then it became a standalone, separately sold entity in 1914 under the editorship of Bruce Richmond. We are a weekly literary and cultural review. And as of this week, I believe if I've got my numbers right, we will have run to a grand total of 6,253 issues. Wow. Throughout which um, one of the benefits of being here for a long time is you become part of a kind of a lineage of writers who have worked for us. We had certainly in the very, very early days, we had Virginia Woolf and Henry James and T.S. Eliot. Um, and we collected quite recently a selection of uh, Virginia Woolf's criticism for the TLS uh, into a standalone book called Genius Inc., which is pretty pretty great stuff, really, really invigorating to read now, even after all these years. So I have been here for, um, I guess I've been here for seven, seven years now. I've been working here as the American literature editor for two years. I, I took over from uh, James Campbell, who is a very fine writer and editor, um, who listeners might know. He is a... Um, uh, a particularly brilliant thinker and writer on James Baldwin, uh, mm. whom he knew for many years. And it was uh, James who commissioned my first McCarthy-related ah. review book in 2017. And I reviewed um, Michael Lynn Cruz's books made out of books and stations. Oh, yeah. people's terrific book on uh, McCarthy and adaptation. Um, so I was very, very lucky that I managed to uh, secure myself as kind of the McCarthy buff among the staff there. And James was very, very gracious in handing me over my first few assignments there which 
got me a bit of a peg in. Um, but I'm very fortunate now that I get to sort of cover anything McCarthy related for the paper, um, such as, you know, so obviously the new books when they came out and uh, the first and just before the pandemic, I covered the first London production of the Sunset Limited, which prior to 2019 and never been performed over here. I know it's still only uh, there. Am I right in thinking there aren't that many productions of it in the US, right? I think probably not that many. Uh, obviously, it, we're not always informed when there are some. I know there's an initial one. I know that uh, Center College had it done because that's where Stacey Peebles is. Yeah. But I, I don't know of a whole lot of them that have been done. We do have, of course, a pretty successful HBO film adaptation. Uh, directed that's right. By Tommy with Lee Jones. Jones and Samuel Jackson. Samuel yeah. Jackson, exactly. You know, when I was in college, I knew for a fact what I didn't want to do for a living was work. But I couldn't figure out any other way to get money, not having any family money at all. So I thought, well, of my possible jobs, best would be to be a writer who makes a lot of money without having to sell out. And that seemed very quickly huh. not to pay any dividends as I would get paid in contributors copies for short stories and poems. Then I thought I would love to be a, a kind of cultural critic where every week I would have a book review or music, you know, an album review or a movie review. And wouldn't that be awesome to be able to do that? And although I wrote a fair number of all kinds of those reviews at different college circulars over the years, and I haven't really paid much money. I got a few great free shows and a few free CDs and free books out of it. And then finally, of course, the academic approach, which is the direction I've gone. And it turned out that the kind of college I'm at, it is a whole lot more work than I anticipated. But I will say that just the idea of professional reviewer and, and editor of reviewers seems like just a great job for people who love books and being around people who discuss books and talk about books. It seems like a great, great way to go. Yes. No, I, I mean, I'm always, Im I count myself immensely lucky to to do the work that I do. Um, I had a, I was very, very fortunate to end up here and I clung on. Nobody's, uh, nobody's booted me out yet. Um, but no, certainly it's a, it's a it's a it's a wonderful job to do, and it gives me time necessary to read, particularly for reviews that I want to read. And I think that's a I, mean, I think that that is a it comes back to what you were saying a moment about about, about the economics of book reviewing these right. days. And I was I, I read and was rereading a book I had read for a review some time ago. We we lost uh, just last week the, the the great travel writer and critic Jonathan Raban. Um, who in his collection uh, for love and money uh, writes quite compellingly about his early days of book reviewing uh, back when that was more in its heyday and when a stack of books would arrive at your door and you'd file your copy the next week and you get a paycheck arrive um, things are a little tougher now things yeah. are a little a little bit more difficult and I think that that is and I do think that this has a an impact on reviewing as a whole I think and I think that we should be careful to talk about that um, I mean, I'm a big believer in doing back reading. If I get assigned right. a, by our fiction editor here, I'll say, okay, well, how many books does this mean reading? Because if I'm not going to just read the most recent novel, if somebody's got six or seven novels behind them, then I think it, I think it does justice to the reader and to the book being reviewed that you go back and you read all of that. So I'm yeah, just, absolutely, yeah, yeah, and I'm just, the, I'm just finishing off a review, a short little review of uh, the most recent book by uh, Jan Foss, the, the Norwegian writer who is, um, I think in in some ways now, I don't know if he, I think he's just been published in the US as a full volume. 
um, his big work, Septology. Um, right. And, and honestly, I didn't know how you pronounced his name, so I didn't recognize it when you said oh, it. I, I hope I've got it right. Um, I, I suspect you you absolutely have it right. I've been saying John Fossey to people, and uh, and I'm positive John Fossey is actually correct, and John Fossey is absolutely only if he was born in South Carolina. Well, possibly. I, we, we do have a Denmark, South Carolina, but <laughs> if he was from that area, perhaps. But he, maybe. I think um, I got commissioned to write this by the fiction editor, my, my brilliant colleague, Toby Lichtig. And I said, okay, well, I've read I've read a few of his books already, so I'll go away and I'll read the other two that I've got left to read off. And my job gives me the luxury to do that. Um, right. But I think these days, if you're a freelance writer catching up on a whole body of work, and particularly if you are reading something like a body of work as interconnected as McCarthy's, that, that becomes practically difficult, particularly given the word rates that uh, freelance writers have to work with these days. But I think that, you know, I'm enormously pleased to do the work that I do here. Uh, again, the bulk of my day-to-day work is commissioning right. reviews of uh, American literature and of essays and biographies of writers. Um, and I get to work with a great host of writers. I get to work with um, uh, kind of writers like Becca Rothfeld and Philip Lope and James Marcus, formerly the editor of Harper's. And uh, the great Michael Gora, who we were speaking about right. just recently, and that gives me that gives me a lot of pleasure. And I think that being able to be the point of kind of return within the TLS for McCarthy works is a great, great privilege, and gives me a lot of time to, you know, it justifies the fact that I can spend hours reading journal entries and uh, reading books and call it work. Right. Um, so I've just I've just got myself listed for a copy of uh, Diane Luce's new book. Yeah, so I'm just waiting, waiting anxiously for that to arrive. It's extraordinary. And the title for that is Embracing Vocation, Cormac McCarthy's Writing Life from, I think it says 5974. I'm looking over at my bookshelf where I have my own copy. Uh, yeah, it's oh, no, extraordinary. I, I can't wait to read it. And I'm, I mean, as I say, and, and would have liked to have said an even greater length in my review of uh, The Passenger and Stella Maris. I mean, we can't be grateful enough for all the work that Diane has done in this area. Absolutely. That gives us a nice pivot point. I do want to back up on one thing. Is I think in the United States, we have a number of well-known short reviewers that come out in the New York Times and the LA Times and Washington Post. People like Ron Charles. Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the woman who just retired from Janet Maslin, perhaps, New York Times and so on. Uh, a number of others. It, but I don't know if we have a lot of good long review people. James Wood famously comes to mind who of course, is British um, and uh, is married to Claire Massoud. And I think he's he's partial on faculty at Harvard, but who's writ- writes great long reviews and who wrote a pretty interesting piece on the new books as well in The New Yorker. But I don't know if we have a whole lot of those in the way that in in Great Britain you guys do. And I, I think of the UK as a, a more literate society, but it may be the distinction between London and the rest of the country or other parts of the UK. And in the same way that New York feels like a pretty literate place when you go to it with all the bookstores and book happenings, but it's really just a function of its size as opposed to small towns. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably true. I mean, like I mean, like many professions, literary criticism in the UK is largely London centric. Um it'd be it'd be lying to say that it's not. Um but we do have a a great tradition of very, very good. And I work with a lot of very, very talented, brilliant critics and writers who write for us over here. But certainly in terms of longer form 
a lot of the difficulty over here is that the money's just the money's just too tough that right. people that to spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of one's time reading and thinking comprehensively about books and rereading and thinking comprehensively it's difficult it's an economic factor as much as anything right. else particularly in particularly in less well-off parts of the country but certainly we have a broad i mean as in the same of the states there is a a broad and dynamic and diverse field of uh writers working over here i don't know to what extent there is a breakout of uk writers who write for the us press i know certainly a lot of our writers that we use at the tls are american based uh-huh. um i don't know if it goes very much the other way i don't know um we have a couple of writers who write for us and who write for both sides of the pond right um but i certainly i think that yeah i mean james, james Wood is the um the obvious one that people return to um i thought it was i thought i i read his review in the new yorker and i suspected they would give it to him given that yeah. he also has a pretty famous he wrote a pretty famous piece on mccarthy for the new yorker again i think in 2000 it was just after no country came out i i think it was just after no country and he was yeah. com- if i remember that piece and i've read it a number of times so i should remember better than i do he's kind of comparing the mccarthy of the blood meridian era to the updated right. version of No Country for Old Men a little bit. Yeah, but he, he also has, references Suchery. So he shows he's done some deep reading, uh, as you've talked about. Oh, certainly. And I think that he, and I think he's, he's a he's a good and challenging critic. I don't always find myself agreeing with him, but I think I think his book, Serious Noticing, is, is terrific. It's a really worthwhile collection of criticism for people to read. The Broken Estate, I think the earlier collection is also really right. solid. What yeah. I like about him is he is certainly not afraid to go after sacred cows. Nope. What I don't like about him is when it's my sacred cow, he goes after. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> no, but I think that, and and I hope I don't make uh, any enemies on listeners here, but I think he had he had a great line in that piece back in 2009 where he singles out yeah, he's talking about McCarthy's style and he's very, very good because he does he does the reading and he does close, hard reading. And right. even though he's perhaps a little bit unfair in, in this dismissal, if it applies to the entire of, entirety of McCarthy's, uh, McCarthy's corpus, he at one point says he singles out a couple of lines and calls him one of the great hams of American prose, huh. which I think is it's a it's a hard one. But a couple of examples he gives out. And I think it's I think it's important to be able to sure. You know, to talk about this sometimes where McCarthy goes a little bit over and where things don't quite work. And I think he's very, very good at pointing to those little points. But I just think that even if I don't necessarily agree with it as a line, I do think it's a good line. Yeah. Well, and to, to use a particular American idiom, you can't you can't hit a home run without taking big swings. And big swings also mean a few strikeouts here and there. There are very few strikes for McCarthy compared, I would say, to either, certainly compared to Hemingway, who published more bad books than McCarthy has, at least yeah. his big play and the cross river and the trees are pretty rough compared to what he'd done before. And even Faulkner, mm-hmm. some of the la- later stuff a fable and, and so on is really just not worthy of what he did in the early yeah. days. So r- before we jump into the new books, uh, just very quickly, would you say McCarthy was noticed, but, but not paid a lot of attention to before all the pretty horses with his earlier? Uh, certainly. Yeah. I think that I mean, I've been chasing down our old reviews of him. I can count as lucky in this. Um, the TLS reviewed all of his first books, even when they weren't, even when they weren't oh, selling wow. wide. Oh yeah, yeah. So we we caught it. We had the we called the Orchard Keeper when it first came out. Interestingly, we caught it in a review alongside. I think it was in a new fiction section alongside um, a book by Yukio Mishima, which is huh. kind of interesting. To it's an interesting uh, pairing to read it alongside yeah, each other for sure. 
So Outer Dark and... Yeah, that's right. Outer Dark. Um, certainly, and I think that the reception to the early books um, suffers from probably the same that it did in the US, that the comparisons to Faulkner yeah. tend to be really, really strong, um, particularly in um, Outer Dark. And later on, even though we we published a very, very positive review of uh, Satri when it came out, but it does, but it makes comparisons between sure. O'Connor and Faulkner again. And I think that... And one of the things that I think is interesting in the UK, if I can take us on a very, very brief tangent before we get into the into the new books, I think what's interesting is that there is a level of I, what I'd be very, very, very reluctant to call laziness over here. And it is partly down to the economic factors that I mentioned uh, before. But I think that too often critics in the UK are keen to fall back on easy stereotypes about McCarthy's writing, either right. in comparisons to Faulkner or Hemingway in particular, which valid though they sometimes are always strike me as being slightly too broad a statement and right. always have that very vague ring of this feels copied from somewhere else, copied from somewhere else, copied from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, I think he, he think he suffers a little bit as a result of that. And I certainly think it's interesting that UK writers who have been influenced by McCarthy, uh, Benjamin Myers and David Van and Ian McGuire, all end up suffering and being kind of beleaguered by the same level of criticism that McCarthy originally was. Yeah. That they, well, these are just imitators of McCarthy. And yeah. so the cycle continues. It's that Harold Bloom anxiety of influence. You know, for a right. while you're called the Ephebe and you're just the apprentice. And then when you become right. the master, you have your own Ephebes and people follow. And I guess the question is, do you ever do you evolve into being your own artist or not? And I, I believe despite the real connections we can make in early work between Faulkner and Joyce, particularly McCarthy from day one is his own artist and no one can dismiss the orchard keeper as not a full piece of work, you know, a full no, quite. Novel, I, again, novel worthy of reading. And I think that is, I think that is a very, very good point to bring up. I certainly think that the, the orchard keeper has its merits. I, I, you know, I certainly don't think of it as McCarthy's strongest book and it's in many yeah. ways. It's like it's 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 in places a slightly taxing book. I think it, it doesn't and it doesn't cohere in quite the same way that doesn't. It feels it certainly has a kind of you can see the early vision, the early talent really rippling right. through it. But I think there are places where it feels, if not lacking confidence, a little bit a little bit unstructured, a little bit unstable. And um, there's it, it can't quite make up with how much of the influence it wants to take. And I think that obviously, well, what we know is that Albert Erskine had a very very Good yeah. and, and I, I think it was probably a blessing that McCarthy um, ended up with Erskine by that long shot letter that he sent to, to his publisher. But I think it's interesting, certainly, you talk about Joyce and Wolf. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things, and I promise we'll get onto the, the new novels after, after this, but I think there is an interesting point in the attitudes in the UK and Ireland towards his writing. I think that despite the long, proud history we have of modernism from Joyce and Beckett through to Wolf and Elliot, there is, I think, some residing sense of irritation towards writers who are deemed to be hard for the sake of being hard. Right. And I wonder if this stems from the distance to those writers I just mentioned. And certainly the American postmodernists get a harder time over here, I think. I think it's something deemed to be a little unbecoming about challenging the reader. Yeah. It makes one seem like an impolite guest at a dinner party. But certainly writers like, uh, as, as we spoke about just before this recording, writers like Pynchon and Coover and Barthelme are probably, probably little read over here. And David Foster Wallace, who, as you know, certainly admired McCarthy's early work greatly and certainly influenced by it, seems to now be something of a punchline, which is a 
which is a shame because I think um, I mean, I've certainly read compelling comparisons between McCarthy and the postmodernists, which strikes me as rich for mining. And I'm yet to read, I, I live in hope to read an article about McCarthy's work in Infinite Jest and, you know, half toyed with the idea of writing it myself since I think there is so much to say there, um, but, you know, between the types of relationship which uh, Leslie Fiedler talks about in Love and Death in the American yeah. Novel and the studies of technological advancement and loneliness, which we know yeah. pop up in McCarthy's works all the time. And I think you're, you've stumbled on something very interesting there. We do have a tendency in the Academy to get a little tired and a little trite with some of our theory when we rely on theory as opposed to also close reading and broadly applied reading. And so we might go back to Kristeva one more time. We might go back to, to I don't know, Foucault one more time. We might go back to name the you know influential theory provider of your choice yeah. before we're willing to kind of branch into new areas or not worry about it. And that Part of that's just how people are trained in in graduate school at a particular given time. I was very much taught to read theory, but a lot of my teachers weren't really necessarily disciples of a particular kind of theory. It's more you have to know how what these guys are saying to know how to read it when you see it. And then you go through a long wave of kind of, you know, and this is how you do a proper Marxist reading. Here's how you do a proper materialist reading. Here's how you do a proper, you know, Lacanian reading. And it can interfere with your ability to simply read the book that's there if you're looking yeah. for it to fill out certain charts. And I think the American Academy has gone away from that. And my own feeling has always been when it's useful and it works, go with it, but don't force it, you know, where it where it doesn't belong as well. Certainly. So. And I, I think that I think I think that's accurate. I think that one has to try and in the first in, instance read a book in a vacuum. But if it's a a particularly important or well discussed work i think it can be really valuable to read absolutely through the through a different lens because even if it's a reading that you don't necessarily agree with i mean we learn partly through disagreement i think one of the reasons we yeah. can't with our own and one and one of the marks of truly great critics that you read is that they've been able to synthesize different positions and right. come up with their original one yeah absolutely So as we pivot then, I thought by by quite a long shot at the time that it came out, and a few good ones came out afterwards that I would recommend, such as uh, Valerie Stivers wrote one in an online journal that I'll, I'll look up here to reference in the show notes. And and James Woods, as we said, later Joy Williams wrote a pretty interesting one. In yeah, one Joy Williams, big- I would have singled out. Yeah, in a big magazine. But George, I, I still will stand by even those and even against such august personalities as Joy Williams and James Wood. I think you wrote the best one, partly because of your deep understanding and appreciation for his previous novels. Uh, and as of right now, probably all indications are this is probably the last novel we should expect from him. I, w- I would assume there are drafts and fragments that have not been completed. There might be. I, I think I spoke to Greg uh, Wallach posted in the McCarthy forums uh some time ago just when the new books came out and saying he had a pretty good authority that this was this was the last that we were going to get i don't know if you saw the the long video that came out the interview with him uh hosted i think in part with the santa fe institute 
the long video interview with him and um uh, Krakauer or and, Krakauer, one with, yeah. with, and there's another one of Strauss where he's which is uh, more recent. Yeah, Lawrence Krauss. He, I read I saw that yeah, one. Krauss, um, thank you, with Krauss. Yeah, the I I found the Lawrence Krauss one a little bit difficult in places. I think yeah. partly I think I I felt it felt a little combative at points, and I think that I mean certainly it's sad to see McCarthy looking a little bit more frail than he does in the Santa Fe Institute. But there's a there's a really nice little line in the Santa Fe Institute where he's talking to Krakow and they're talking particularly about McCarthy's love of architecture. Yeah, and Krakow makes a line saying, "Well, I know at one point you played around with the idea of um, releasing a book of your." Your architectural drawings and your and the influence of uh, kind of Frank Lloyd Wright and I I, I kind of pause and kind of play the video back and say like, is this is this a thing that we might get at some point in the future but but I would suspect that I would suspect that the most we'll see in the future and I, I this is just speculation I suspect what we might get is at some point we'll get the Library of America will do collected right. works and they might put if they can get the rights for it, they'll get they'll get those early short stories right and they'll get a drowning incident in the wake for Susan um and they might combine those together but but certainly i think this is probably the end in terms of major novels well and it, it wouldn't surprise me you know after faulkner died uh random house comes out to giant collection called unpublished stories which is weird because it's being published in a book but you know yeah so maybe previously unpublished stories random house but even to this day you can find you know william faulkner stories and previous and unpublished stories are the two collections mm-hmm. you find by faulkner so going into the passenger uh it was a very rich review and i am going to put a note on where people can find it in the podcast notes whenever i finish editing and post this and so i don't want to steal all the thunder but could you just give me your kind of general gist on what works best and where did they it kind of maybe not quite work right and, and i guess let me just start george with a question do you kind of feel about the way i do instead of a very separate big brother novel and little sister novel and I'm always going to use those two tags for those. Are they really read as one long text best? Or do you think they should really be seen as very separate novels? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I've certainly read different views on this. Uh, I read, I, I'd struggle to remember who said this at one point, saying that Stella Maris could be read as a standalone and that you, you wouldn't even need to read The Passenger, which I find to be a slightly peculiar way of approaching the books. Certainly, I think, and I've seen various different reasons saying people saying, "Oh, you should read Stella Maris first, then The Passenger," which again strikes me as being a slightly odd, odd way of going about it. I think that the, I think it's interesting. I think it's certainly interesting the way that they chose to publish these, right? And I think there's there'll be plenty more. I think if we can get some way down the line, um, maybe we can rely on uh, Diane Luce again to drag out the truth of this uh, exactly how they came to publish them in this in in this way rather than one standalone volume. I know that part of the reason that the wait between books, between this getting published for such a long time, one of the slightly insubstantiated claims that was going around was that the book was just becoming too hard to edit, was that the book had started to slow down in the editing process and that it was taking a little while to get it right, and particularly taking it via different mathematicians that McCarthy knew to get all the get all his maths checked. Right. Uh, the other thing I heard was that they only released it when they did because since his agent or the publishing house had started shopping it around Hollywood, you know, big summaries were leaked onto the internet. Well, that's right. Yeah. And I was one of the people who said, that sounds crazy. I'm sure that's not true. And I had to go back onto those internet forums later said, I owe that person an apology to stuff. Everything they said about the hallucinations. Originally leaked on the, on the forum seems to be, it seemed to be pretty much bang on. Yeah. 
except that it's not the kid from Blood Meridian who's That's the, right, the yeah, yeah, kid. Yeah. But other than that, it was pretty close. So I did make an apology. Almost bang on. I mean, I have no idea how they would turn these two into into material. I suspect the only way that, and again, this would just be my inclination. I suspect the only way you'd get it is if you combine the two and turn it into a kind of a long series. Yeah. A long television. So I cannot see it working as even two films, even as a kind of sequential films. I just don't see it working. I think it's too naughty and too complicated, but certainly I can see a television version working where the main plot of a passenger takes out and you have flashbacks to Dr. Conan and Alicia's therapy right. sessions i don't know if it'd be a good adaptation i don't know if i'm dying to see it right but i suspect that if if i was putting money on which way they'll go with it then you know hbo or someone to take uh to take that kind of right. position would be where i'd go and i i still kind of believe that initially stella morris was really part of the overall passenger script and they finally realized it was it it was all too jumping back and forth and that's where the decision to divide it came but i have no proof of that. I haven't asked his brother about that. And Dennis typically doesn't want to talk Cormac's business at all, unless he says something that embarrasses Cormac or something. So, Sure. Certainly. I mean, I think that the idea of a television adaptation is kind of interesting, but I, I, get, I get the sense that from reading it and have, from having read the books a few times over now, I suspect that you're probably on the money. I suspect that these probably started life and, I, and maybe we'll know more when we learn about the the release of the archive and when people get to start rummaging right. around through the archives about exactly what form these took originally. I suspect that it took that maybe it began life as a very, very naughty book and that they and that they tried to make it work as one volume and they interspersed sections of Stella Maris throughout the passenger, but with all the jumping back between uh Alicia's final days leading up to that. Right. Up to that Christmas day where she dies at the start of the novel, I think that that, that would have become a pretty weighty and pretty yeah. hard novel to sell to publishers. So returning to your review a bit, let's start with the weaknesses and then move to the strengths. What do you see as the weaknesses, the place where a, a lot of people, I will say that I'm surprised by a number of people in, who have both in writing and online who really believe this is truly one of his masterpieces. And I've, I've been careful to explain my own more lukewarm response, which is my evaluation is not comparing us to all the books published in the United States uh, and even the UK, the English-speaking world, the last 15 years, my response is totally based on compared to the rest of McCarthy's corpus. So I've been prized at a, a number of people seeing it as, a, as the masterpieces, because I do feel there are some significant problems with it. And to start with the kind of weak and then work into the, the many strengths of the books, maybe we can do that. What do you, Where do you see those weaknesses or the failings, perhaps? Yeah, I think that's, I, mean, I, th- I certainly think that your way of approaching it is the correct one. I think that the main issues with Passenger, particularly to start, I think there are a few moments where things trail off a little bit. I think he loses the sense of narrative cohesion and drive that pushes it forward. I think there are too many stretches which don't feel like they justify themselves. I feel like there are whole sections that could have been cut frankly when he uh goes out to the the kind of swamplands to pick up pick up the friend who's been living kind of barricaded himself away in his trailer house uh yeah and, and then he goes to he he sees him off at the end of the diner and he talks about the women he's the the woman that he's seeing to me a lot of that feels pretty weak and it feels a little bit flabby around the gut of the the gut of the main novel and i think that it struggles to compel the reader through huh. i think that certainly the sections with Certainly the sections with Alicia, the italicized sections that precede every chapter, I think are completely compelling. And I want to read, read, 
I think it's going to be wonderful is as the years go by to dig deeper and deeper into these. Yeah. And find out what what they have in store. Because certainly, as we know with all of Macaulay's writing, that there's always layers under layers. There's always careful work and research that's gone into these. Right. And certainly they're very, very fun sections in place. I mean, clearly he's having a lot of fun with the wordplay yeah. and with my kid in particular. And that's kind of a, a little bit of a new thing with McCarthy, because even though there's very humorous sections in in you know uh, throughout Sutri, uh, which for all yeah. its problems I, I find is a or for all the social problems it's dealing with, I find to be a very humorous novel. And there's a laconic dry wit to all the Westerns, even including Blood Meridian yeah. as well. Uh, maybe not. I don't see a lot of humor in the road, I have to admit. No, that's 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 right. I mean, I'm, I'm, my, uh, Michael Lynn Cruz in his, in his terrific recent book makes what I think is probably a slightly bold claim that McCarthy is one of the great undervalued comedic writers in American history. And I think that maybe that goes a little bit a little bit far, but I certainly think that it's undervalued. I think that there are right. a couple of elements of McCarthy's work that are frequently undervalued. One is the tenderness that he shows to his characters in places, yeah. and I think the humor. I think people miss out on the humor all the time, yeah. particularly in a book like Satri, which is so finely balanced yeah. between humor and tragedy. Um, but I think that the places where the passenger starts to dip a little bit, I find the writing to be a slightly interesting, uh, as I say in the review, I find it to be a bit of a chimera. I find it to be slightly mashed together bits of style and they don't always cohere. Huh. You have these wonderful sections, um, particularly where he talks about, where he recalls the uh, the explosion of the transit test, talking about, you know, the great white yeah. of Meridian. And I think that these are, you know, these are real proper McCarthy paragraphs, yeah. some of these. And these are, Really wonderful, night, but I think that in places, some of the prose slips not quite towards, and, and there and there are oddities and um, oddities in the book. I think that don't exist anywhere else in his yeah. anywhere else in his writing. There are there are um, these slightly weird standalone sentences, and they kind of they're a slightly staccato rhythm to some yeah. of them, and um, kind of like a little three cent kind of three word jots in between that. Totally stand and, and really ring as odd to my ear. Yeah, and the road I think does that some. And I what I think we're seeing is the fact that this book was written from 1980 through last year or, or two years ago, whenever he finally yeah gave over ago. the draft for editing. And I think uh, because of that, there's a, we know what he's writing like in 1980 because we have Sutri and then we have Blood Meridian. And then we know what he's writing about, like in the you know '90s with the Border trilogy, and so I think that slight change in rhythms and style maybe reflects the fact that it just took him so long to write these books. Yes, I agree, and, and certainly I and I, I touched on this briefly in the review as well that we have to take the Passenger and the Stella Maris as you know as part of their kind of their extremely long gestation period. I think we have to think about all the different things that McCarthy has written and the things that have gone on in the world and right in his writing style and his and particularly in the relationship he'll have with his editors over that time yeah and i think that sometimes that does jump out i think that i try not to go too much into this because i one is always a slave to one's word count but Mm. i think there are a couple of places where in the editing of the passenger just tiny little anachronisms that jump out and i know that there are anachronisms dotted about mccarthy's work um yeah, the the guns that Sugar uses in No Country, for example, right? Don't don't work in terms of the timings. But I thought a couple of them were very very weird. And if I can finally use this as an excuse to talk about one that jumped out, but I didn't get uh, length to include oh, it, there is a one line line of dialogue which is repeated across both books, and that is between Doctor Cohen and Alicia, and between Klein and Bobby. And when 
uh, Bobby goes to see Klein for the first time. Klein tests him. He thinks it's funny. And he says, what's a gluon? And he says, it's a point particle used in exchange. And it goes over. And Dr. Cohen asks Alicia the same thing. She says, right. what's a gluon? And she says it. And either this is a... Either this is just an oddity of editing. This is just somebody missed. He, he liked the idea. He thought this was a funny exchange and it just never got caught in the editing and really right. thought this is repeated. Or McCarthy is trying to say something very, very, very important. Yeah. But like Khan somehow has the transcripts of Dr. Cohen's and he knows that Bobby's going to visit him. It, and it's and then you go into sort of mad Pinchonian territory. Yeah. Um, but I think, but again, I just, I think little details like that are interesting. And I think that I was surprised that it didn't get caught. And I think there are a couple of other things that I that I mentioned that, you know, like with uh, Alicia talking about Coletta, where Rosemary Candy was sent by her family. And there's no way she would have known about this. It, that, that information didn't become public for a long time afterwards, even as kind of public mythology. And just a couple of little things like that, I thought, stood out as being slightly bizarre. And I wonder whether the result of they were slightly rushing the editing process to yeah. get it. To get it out because I I worry and and again this is just speculation. I suspect they were a little bit worried that they did they might not have all the time in the world to edit these books. Yeah, McCarthy say so, and I know that McCarthy. I think this is right that still communicates via paper and pen, so none of this would be coming via email. So yeah. that's a yeah that's a that's a laborious task and process for any editor right. to get through. Well, and I guess there are a few of the mathematician and physicist biographical notes that are anachronistic in Stella Morris, given the year of that book, yeah. that would have worked in The Passenger coming yeah. ostensibly yeah, I suspect parts of the, I suspect 10 years parts later. Of yeah. yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right. I suspect that part of that um, was meant to go or might have been originally taken from the scene where Bobby is talking in the, in the diner with um, his friend. Who's, talking about his father. Yeah, yeah the, right. the journalist who's talking about his father. I suspect they might have been cribbed from there a little bit and just used to add some flow to either either from lines that he took from Stella Maris and put into The Passenger or vice versa. I, I don't right. know which way around this, but that would be my suspicion. You know, the challenge with a writer like McCarthy, and it's very much the same challenge you have with Hemingway, Faulkner, uh, James Joyce, any number of the writers we could name, is we, on the one hand, we find something that doesn't quite add up and the reaction of the fan is to say, oh, this is on purpose to accomplish something. And then, of course, the re the reaction of the skeptic is to say, well, here's an error. And with writers like these, and particularly with McCarthy, you really have to kind of be careful because it may well be something that stands out and catches your ear is on purpose. But we also shouldn't ignore the fact it could simply be an error or a typo or something. And I think a lot of it comes down to the text around, uh, you know, things in Blood Meridian are so incredibly well-researched, yet also so incredibly well-integrated, it doesn't ever give way to the research. You don't ever feel like you're reading a research paper rewritten as a novel. Yeah. And so, you know, it's always, it's a challenge in these books. And I think my own feeling of the weaknesses is, okay, are the weird government people after him because of his father or because of the passenger? Why do we have to have both? Um, I don't need it to work as a suspense novel, especially if it's clear it's becoming a little bit more of an allegory or the, the, the whole notion of the passenger is meant to be taken thematically. But we do spend a lot of time setting it up to not either resolve it or make it uh, being unresolved more significant. And I, so again, was it because it was rushed? It's, it's all because of the plan the entire time. I do think one of the things that the critics who haven't read a lot of McCarthy who are doing kind of right is they're taking the book at its own 
face value and drawn some interesting conclusions because of that. I think, George, you brought up some really good points about the strengths of these books as well. Could you talk about some of those for a minute? Yeah, of course. And certainly, I think the I, I I agree with you. I think that for the most part, I don't think these are I don't think these two books are his masterpieces at all. I think that I think there are plenty plenty of criticisms. I think there are plenty of sections that are too slow, and I think that there are sections where he lets things get away from him a little bit. And I'm sure we'll find out more about the kind of uh, anachronisms that are going through there, and particularly with regards to who could have known what when. I think right. somebody is going to have to do some pretty hard hard graft to piece those things together. Right. But nevertheless, I think that they are in many ways, I think the thing that I like about them is that they are very, very McCarthy. They they, they bleed a lot of McCarthy into them. I think that yeah. obviously the inclusion of John Shen, the fact that this, this, this very, very bold thing for McCarthy to do to include a real person in. And again, and then that's a, that's a thing that I only found out a little way, ways afterwards that, that John Shedden really existed. You can yeah, buy. Me too. Yeah, yeah. You, you can, you can. I, I don't know if it still exists or whether one of the the more well-off McCarthy fans has has bought it already. But certainly on Abe Books for a section, kind of recently, there was a signed copy to, signed to John Shedden by Connor McCarthy. I think it's, I think it's a first copy of The Orchard Keeper. Um, and I think that's, and I certainly think that's interesting. A lot of him and a lot of his time in New Orleans, I think, probably reads on the page. I would be delighted to know how much the interaction between uh him and Debussy Fields is. I want to know if that's a person he really yeah. or yeah, is is based off some character. I was shocked. I mean, I, I when I first read, yeah, when when Debussy is first introduced when they first go to dinner together, or go to yeah. lunch together. And and McCarthy is and this and this isn't the first transgender character that McCarthy has used. Obviously there are um characters in Satri. And yet to have like a fully fleshed out and really sensitively done. Yeah interaction and friendship and i think the relationship between him and debussy is it's so wonderfully done some of the sections yeah. uh where, where where they're talking about her her life and her transition the this the great tragedy of her going home to see her going home to see her mother and the interactions she yeah. has with her sister they're beautifully done they're yeah. really sensitive and they're really they they make one's heart solid and i was not expecting that no. from mccarthy at all i I think there are some, so I think that's, that's, that's a wonderful relationship that he puts in there. I think some of the atmospheric stuff that he does, I mean, food in McCarthy is an interesting thing anyway. I think that food is a, is a much discussed and very interesting subject, particularly with kind of class distinctions and with atmosphere. Um, so there are some wonderful food scenes. Yeah. In, uh, between him, particularly between him and John Chen, there are some really, really great food scenes. I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of good. Food writing, as it is, I, I, I think food writing is very, very, very difficult to get right um, in novels. I mean, I, I think that the great food writers, of, particularly of, Amer- of kind of America, MFK Fisher. Oh yeah, it's, it's 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 hard to come along writing about food that's like that these days. I think I'm sure that, and, and it's not to say that there aren't brilliant food writers out there now, but I, but I always go back to writers like like MFK Fisher or Elizabeth David. Yeah, but I think that one of the things that McCarthy succeeds in doing with the passenger, I think this has became the kind of the through line that I chose to pick out in my review is the ongoing sense that McCarthy's works going way back. If you start them chronologically, go starting them at Blood Meridian and working forward through time, they all inherit a same, a like same universe. You're very, very aware right. that all these books 
take blame in the same line. And I think that the line that I chose to pick out was I think it is important. I think that I think you're completely right that I think that how he crafts the story around the passenger and his being pursued and his father, I think it does get a little muddy in places. I think it I think that little bits of it are unexplored and not necessarily in a good way. The the sacking of the father's right. estate burning down a place. I I think those would struggle a little bit. But I think what he does in a genuinely good way is build a sense of tension that this is where particularly this is where the modern world and this is where modern america is leading i think the passenger is worth reading as part of its time and as i say it's a ve- it's it's in a way it's a very very cold war novel it has, yeah. it has real real elements of delillo in it i think um and particularly when all of this is taken in with regards to his father's occupation the father's taking part in the manhattan project and where that would inevitably go and yeah. it was and what what became important wasn't the all out encompassing of violence that we didn't we didn't have all out nuclear war world war 3 never generated but what we ended up with was something actually much more mccarthy we ended up with something slightly nebulous and we ended up with something sinister and creeping that can't just be tacked down to one body or yeah. one avatar of evil it's this nebulous floating thing that exists and i think i think that's a really really interesting thing to get from late mccarthy and particularly we know that yeah you know, if we take reading the road as a nuclear warning which i appreciate there are lots of different views on how what the, what the incident in the road is and we'll never get to the bottom of it and that's fine and i know mccarthy has said it's not important it's not relevant yeah but i think one is doing a disservice to reading the rest of those works as not saying something about the potential that the the kind of the cold war and the development of nuclear weapons had and still has and still poses we you know we obviously we don't have to look too very far now in the news to hear about kind of nuclear saber rattling coming up once again and all of this i think the passenger slightly predicts it it yeah does a lot it does a lot to talk about that and i think that is a surprising turn from mccarthy i, w- I wouldn't have necessarily expected it but i think in Looking at it as that, I think it makes total sense. And it really coheres as a thematic progression from his early works and right through to his later works and right. reading the one chronology. And I think that's, and that's why I say in the start of the review, I do not think that these are books that, I know we were talking about, you know, where you should jump in with McCarthy if you're reading for the first time. Don't jump in with The Passenger. No. No, I, w- I yeah. wouldn't tell anyone to jump in. If I, I, was, I was desperate when people were talking to me about, yeah, I, a couple of people and friends said to me, Oh, should I? Well, should I read this? I've, I've never read any of him before, but should I? Should I go with these new books? I said, no, no, yeah. stay, stay, stay well away until you've read the rest. I think it's important to read the Passenger and Stella Maris as 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 parts of a kind of connected universe and as part yeah. of a, an ongoing project with regards to the human capacity for violence and the human capacity to embrace the darker climes of one's nature. I think that one has to view these things as part of a chronology. And the whole notion of spiritual wandering, uh, I don't know if you know the essay published in the early 90s in Southern Quarterly by a man named uh, Gary Wallace, maybe Jerry Wallace, it's G-A-R-R-Y, but he talks about accompanying the poker player, writer, Betty oh, Carey. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he, yeah and he's speaking about meeting McCarthy, right? Yeah, meeting McCarthy and talking about things. And at one point, the notion of religious experience and uh, pr- people having a profound spiritual moment arises. And when he says, oh, I don't believe in it, I don't think it happens. McCarthy says something like, I feel sorry for you. Yeah, A lot of people do have these moments in their lives. And it, it's a little surprising. And, you know, you have the constant, and a lot of it's kind of 
read the road, post the road readership, but lots of discussion about where McCarthy comes down on spiritual matters. And I think one of the best statements I've heard from a friend who had read deeply of his stuff is that he's always wondering, he's always questioning. And I think these books are still doing that because there's so much just, you know, what is it going on with with Alicia and the Horts? Are they really supposed to be hallucinations? Is that so? How does one go speak to Bobby? Why does she not have these other indicators of schizophrenia and, and so on? And it's just, I love the ambiguity, and which is a complete throwback to progenitors like Poe and Hawthorne, who dwell in these same territories at times. And I I think that's another strength in a way, that whole question of what is it that she perceives that so undoes her? And what is it? Being on the other side of the gate. Right. What is that that thing? Is it simply the, I I mean, it it almost seems to, you know, bring us back around to a blood meridian kind of Gnostic reading almost, but it seems to defy that at the same time. It does, and you think that one has to read the way that Alicia engages with the way that Alicia engages with. I think one has to read it in the context of the life of Alexander Grotendieck. I think one has to yeah. talk about that agreement. For those reading Stella Maris and uh, the Passenger for the first time, I would recommend anyone to go and read um, Benjamin Labatut's book uh, "When We Cease to Understand the World," which has a terrific section on uh, Grotendieck and his genius yeah. and his eventual his eventual descent. And his descent is in very much worded in the same way that is. Alicia's is. And so she, clearly... she finds herself brought to tears by what happened to him. Right. No, I, I agree. And I think that one has to, I think people too easily go in on the idea of they, they know what McCarthy's position on this is. And certainly we get a sense of that in his interview with Lawrence Krauss as well. He's a little, he's a little combative in that and says, no, no, no I'm, I'm forget it. It's just, it's just a character speaking. I'm a materialist. It's right. And, and yet sections of that don't gel together with what what we know. I mean, certainly we know about his kind of his 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 Catholic upbringing. And certainly in sections like Sutri, if we take Sutri to be as autobiographical as many of us know it is, one would have to be remarkably unreflective to think that there wasn't some sort of interest or some sort right. of nebulous concept of faith floating around through those books. And I think that you're right that one approaches this in in, in many in much the same way that one approaches Blood Meridian. That there is a sense of Gnosticism going coursing through these books, and there is a, and I think there's a deliberate ambiguity. Right. And again, as you say, that 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 wonderful passage where where the Flynn my kid comes a knocking for for Bobby when he's uh, when he's holed up in his kind of his garret house near the shore, right, eating kind of living off skinned roadkill. <laughs> yeah. Um. I think that. And again, and does he does he see this? Does he have some? Is it a dream? Is it a dream? Is it a visitation? Um, how much, and again, how much we know of what Bobby knows about Alicia and about Alicia's sessions is always left slightly open-ended. And therefore one thinks, does he, does he perceive the thread of my kid because he wants some sense of answer? Does he want an answer from the kid that will help justify what happened to Alicia? I I think that's worth thinking about. Right. Well, and we're, and of course we're talking about string theory, which leads to quantum entanglements. And if we can have quantum computing based on quantum entanglements, can things that are simply only in her mind appear in, uh, you know, how 
Yeah. How entangled can DeQuanta become? <laughs> um, I guess is our question, and it's oh, I, and I am I am sure that and you know parts the what Alicia goes on to say in here start to end up sounding a little bit like what Roger Penrose is talks about talks about now in terms of quantum consciousness. We get little senses of that, and we get senses of exactly what is this thing that we're experiencing, and and out of that come there's quite a large amount of Stella Maris that could have used a little bit more work if there was a little bit more time. But there are some really, truly great lines in there that are so Cormacian, I think, that yeah. they're, um, when all of this is laid to rest, like, for whom will this be a tragedy? Yeah, And lines like that really jump out as, like, standout lines that will give and give and give as we progress and as we continue to read these books. Yeah, um, But I, I think that one of the things that The Passenger and Stella Maris do give us is... If we consider that so much of McCarthy's work is, you know, there are such great depths to the things that he has said, the things that he has written about, and that have been vastly researched and influenced by a lifetime of very, very heavy reading. What a gift to have then if these are the final books, books that require, that will require so much right. analysis and so much pain down. You know, you know, if we get a book like, like Savage's casebook for um, notes on for Blood or India for these two books, then we will be much, much richer. Right. I'm almost positive we will have those. We'll probably have different, various ones, much like you see for Gravity's Rainbow of Pension or The Recognitions of Caddis or, or Finnegan's Wake, although it's certainly, this book is, to my mind, these books are more readable than certainly Gravity's Rainbow, as I told you, I've recently reread for my other podcast and is a, is a challenge in many different ways as well. And certainly Finnegan's Wake, I've never finished because of the challenges these books. You and me both. I, I've I've read Uses, I've read Notes, I've read Dubliners, but yeah. there are smarter, more literate people out there than me who who can make head or tail of Finnegan's Wake. Right. And, maybe, and maybe one day, I mean, you know, in the same way that I took on Gravity's Rainbow a few years ago and have in the past, you know, I've read Gaddis and I've read JR and I've read Prolog of One's Own and the Recognitions. And maybe one day there'll be a day where I sit down and think, this is the year. This is the year I'm going to get. I'm going to get the notes edition. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read Finnegan's Wake, but right. that's a little while off. I think. Well, you know, and how much these books are playing with even that, since I think both of them mentioned the notion of the quark coming out of, right. yeah, or at least the terminology uh, that we use for a quark coming out of Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. That that that's right, and yeah, it's a little love sign off to his great friend Maragama. And the other thing, of course, we have in this novel is every page or two. There's a gift of just beautiful prose even if the style shifts a little bit even if there are places where we're not sure what's going on here uh, for instance how jewish are bobby and alicia is her father actually jewish someone says he must have been to have married a woman who is an orthodox jew she wouldn't have married him but the father's heritage is never really fleshed out the mother's grandmother was jewish so we we have that thing coming up in here but even with all these weird un you know, incomplete, unanswered questions we have that there's just the beauty of the writing from the opening pages to describing what the hunter finds in the snow to Bobby's last kind of mournful thoughts of Alicia at the end that all throughout and even parts of Alicia's discussions with her doctor, it's just so much beautiful writing throughout the books. That's right. And, you know, it's, it's, I think perhaps it was the Los Angeles Times review. And I, and I thought this was odd reviewing to me that it singles out the final closing line that first introductory that right. beautiful I mean, the, the, that Sotri-ish kind of prose poem section that starts right. the passenger and he and he takes exception to the line this cold and barely spoken christmas day and to me i mean and, and also misses out the fact that 
this is supposed to be her 21st birthday that right. she's born. She, this is this is and, and the real misses this. I, th- I think he didn't catch it in Stella Maris that this is the day she was born on Los Alamos. But and and takes it said, I don't understand how a Christmas day could be barely spoken. And and that to me strikes me as yeah. a beautiful and quite an obvious but kind of haunting line the more you think about and yeah. take when you when you read more about Alicia and you read about her problems with expressing the thing within herself, that these yeah. these things that she can't quite she's seen these things in a very, very innate and very, very difficult for anyone else to understand way. And so too this is her final her final act, her final speech act is her signing off. And Christmas Day is silent around her, as silent as she was throughout her life, unable to produce to the world what she knew inside. I I, I think it's a I think it's a wonderful, wonderful starting line. And right. I was slightly baffled by the exceptions. And I think that yeah, you're you're quite right. There are some beautiful sections, particularly when he goes to live in the house out in the hills and he's freezing cold and living alone. I think there are some wonderful, very, very old McCarthy style passages in that. But also we get Something very, very new. We get particularly the sections with Alicia. We get um, the hallucinatory sections. We get really McCarthy, like really letting the throttle out and having. And so, you know, because McCarthy is so careful throughout so many of his books, it's really refreshing to have sections where he is clearly having a lot of fun. Yeah. He is, is, he's had a lot of fun writing these. Yeah. The Little My Kid is completely without precedent in these novels i think uh you know yeah. we could we could look at a person here a person there who maybe is a john shedden type character but nothing prepares you for the thalidomide kid and just hit the constant jokes with language and the playfulness there and it's just a lot of fun to yeah. see i i agree and i think i mean some of the sections with the thalidomide are, are terrific and we'll be mining them for a long ways to come but certainly in terms of i mean this these novels are as I kind of say in my review, these novels are kind of sign-offs, not just of his work, but also of like lifelong friendships. These are yeah. novels that the sections, particularly the final where, and again, that gives some credence to the the visit from the Thalidomide Kid when he is finally visited in Ibiza by where Shedden comes to visit him. I, I don't know how anyone could get through that without being moved. The, those, yeah. That final interaction between the two of them, that this is so clearly something resembling a real a real interaction. It reads so thoroughly. It reads right. so so embodied and so completely intentioned and so thoughtful and so and so melancholy yeah they're, they're wonderful wonderful sections of dialogue and we don't we don't get huge amounts of dialogue like that throughout the rest of the book you know certainly we get sections of it in Satri, but writing between people between relationships between people and long truly honest dialogue between people where they're not trying to they're not trying to confound each other like Shedden, right. Shedden doesn't have any interest in confounding bobby no. He knows that they're different people. He said, yeah, you know, he he makes as much clear right in the start that they are they are very, very different creatures. And yet in the same way, it's they've both been enriched by their knowing each other. And I think that this is probably a sign off both to the Shev and the McCarthy New, um, to to Leslie Garrett, to Murray Galman. This is this is something of a sign off. And it's it's a kind of a testament to the value in many ways of learning through friendship. Absolutely. Well, George, as we have meandered through a little bit over an hour here, let me ask you the question I always ask all my first-time guests, which is, what's your favorite McCarthy novel and why? Ah, well, here's a tricky question I'm going to try and wriggle my way out of. Well, on a critical level, I'm probably going to stick with the herd here, and I'll I'll stick with with Blood Meridian. I'm I'm only one rereading from my copy basically falling apart in my hands. It's it's (laughs) held together with tape in places now. It is a book of seemingly bottomless depths and what excites me as a critic and as an editor 
is the thrill of how much more we have to discover still, how the novel is still giving to us after all this time. We have such a vast and fine body of work around it, particularly that of John Seppich, of course. Yet I still find each new journal entry I can with excitement. Yeah. However, as a reader, I am going to take Citroën, which I finished rereading as part of my review and and remain amazed by what a wonderful experience that book is, uh, containing with it all those things that I personally have come to value in McCarthy's work. And it's not just the amalgamation of influences from Faulkner and O'Connor and Joyce and Cervantes, or the, or the glorious diction, the prose poem styles, or the set pieces, but it is the heart and tenderness it displays in the relationship between Gene and Sutt. And in its quietest moments, the moments where he explains the tree and one suspects McCarthy is explaining himself to the reader. Yeah. So how much characterization, and I, and, I, and I jotted this down just before I came in, how much characterization we get in one line, for example, when he, when he goes to sit in the Church of the Immaculate Conception and sits, quote, like the child that sat in these self-same bones, so many Black Fridays in terror of his sins. And I think that quiet moments of reflection like that yeah. Give us so much. And one of the conceptions of McCarthy, particularly to kind of somebody who's only read a little bit of him, is that his characters are too thin or that they're avatars of the philosophy. And yet in moments like that in Satri, and as too with Glanton staring into the fire in Blood Meridian, we see how much care and how much he puts into the idea that a person can be caught in just one careful line. Right. So gun to my head, I will take Cornelius and the gang to my desert island. I'm with you. And I think the greatest books, no matter who wrote them or what circumstance, the greatest books that really move in and invade you are the ones, I think, that reward infinite rereading. I completely agree. I don't necessarily want to reread Anna Karenina year in and year out in the way I do a lot of McCarthy novels, but I know I can and get something new. And the same with Toyshevsky, you know, the, the best Toyshevsky, the same for the best Hemingway, the best Faulkner, the best Melville, Tony Morrison. And uh, Virginia Woolf, and absolutely is true for me with with McCarthy's best. And and I will say, as a kind of way of closing out the conversation, I have read The Passengers Telemars twice, and I'm eager to start them a third time. So, despite whatever we're perceiving as you know failings that maybe having an unrealistic expectation of the writer creates, it doesn't mean that they're not providing something every time we go through them that gets us interested in in going back yet another time. And like you said. One day when they start publishing the notes on the passenger and, and Stella Morris, uh, that'll be that'll be nice to see. That's right. We have we we still have a lot to look forward to. I think exactly, George. I very much appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. I've been delighted to be here. Thank you, George Barrett. is the American literature editor, the Times Literary Supplement, who lives and works in London, England. His review of the passenger Stella Morris was published in October last year. Thanks as well to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced the music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope they'll someday see the light. Download, follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitch, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy Great American Novel Podcast, hosted by myself and Kirk Kernan. Contact me. Please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Despite evening redness in the West, Reading McCarthy is also on Twitter and Facebook. The website's at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. And if you like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the very top of the webpage to buy the show a cappuccino or support us at www.patreon.com forward slash reading McCarthy.